morning. And thanks, Jack, for reading that text. Uh, before we start, I just want to express to everyone how grateful I am for the ways in which you have welcomed uh, Abby and I into the community. Um, we're just so thankful to be here and excited to serve with you. For those who we haven't gotten to meet as well, uh, soon. Let's make it happen. Um, before I start preaching, uh, let's pray one more time. Holy God, hear our words and hear the cries of our hearts. We pray that you would let this spoken word be faithful to your written word and lead us to the living word, Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Spirit. We pray this with Christ. Amen. All right, so before we start, I want to start with a game. I know we have some high schoolers here, so not that you're all about games. Adults love games, too. But I want us to ask, uh, you have to figure out what kind of ice cream I'm going to describe, all right? So imagine you're in Costco, you're going down the sample aisle, you're eating everything this afternoon, and you walk into the frozen aisle, and the sales associate says, I have this sample of ice cream, who wants to try it? And so I'm going to describe it for you, take notes, try and figure out what it is, and then we'll try and reveal it all at the end, okay? So I'll ask you what it is at the end. So to start, the ice cream is green, okay, has brown or black like specks inside it, it has a pretty distinct smell, and they serve it with like a green leaf sitting on top, and the associate says it is refreshing, okay? So green, brown specks, distinct smell, refreshing, has that leaf on it. Everyone have an idea? You, you, everyone confident? Anyone really confident on what this looks like? Yeah. <laughs> we got hands, okay. <laughs> so people are really confident. All right, on three, we're going to say what it is, all right? One, two, three. Green tree and black sesame. Wait, what? Green tea and black sesame? <laughs> Green tea and black sesame, Anyone? So if you go to Asia, I can assure you, if you go to get ice cream and you see ice cream that's green, black specks, they're like, oh, this is really good, it's refreshing, and you, you don't sample it, you just go and pick it up, right? I can almost guarantee you, it's not mint chocolate chip, friends. <laughs> Do not be fooled, okay? It is green tea and black sesame. It tastes really good. The sesame seeds kind of get stuck in your teeth a little bit, so bring floss, but it's good, all right? So... Obviously, funny little game, but on the one hand, we are really confident about the things that we like to see, right? And the things that we interpret and intuit. So we hear this description, we read a description, we read a text in the Bible, and the same kind of confidence, we're like, I know what the point of this is. This is easy for me, right? We've heard things. If you've been in church for any period of time, you've heard this text preached before. If you've been to VBS... You've probably done a series on this text. For me, my twin and I, we did a series on this text growing up where, like, every day you make a different piece of armor, and then at the end of the day, you go home with your suit of armor. And then what do you do with the suit of armor when you have a twin brother? You battle royale, right? <laughs> and so my sword, which was like the, um, the wrapping paper, the long cardboard thing, quickly got destroyed. It didn't withstand the, uh, the schemes, but it probably became a vehicle of violence. That's what happened. <laughs> Anyways, 
In Pentecostal terms, this is one of these texts, this text that we're reading today, is one of those texts that they will say, oh, that's going to preach, right? And so principalities and powers, check. Uh, put on the armor of God, yeah, that's, that's our thing. That's, our, that's what we always talk about, break down strongholds. So we'll say, that will preach, the anointing's there. That's a sermon that will just preach itself. You just read it and it happens. And yet, as we turn to Ephesians 6, 10 to 20 this morning, let us not be too quick to look at the appearance of this text and miss the heart of what God is trying to say to us. Like, as we read this text this morning, may we allow the text to read us, convicting and shaping us into the image of God. So let's dive into the word. If you're following around with the bulletin, first point, be strong. So first point, be strong. Verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Now note, some translations might say, be strengthened in the Lord in the strength of his might. Right? But in the strength of his power. Have you ever stopped to think about what this verse is saying? I was talking with Andrew this morning um, when we were looking at the text. And he was like, there's so much in here. I wanted to try and streamline it. it Almost seems like there's things that are just overemphasized over and over. It seems a bit redundant, doesn't it? Be strong in the strength, or be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Maybe this is apparent to you, but for me, as I was preparing this week, I was struck by the question that this, vo- this verse it forces on us. So if we're called to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power, then what is the power in which we are supposed to be, uh, in which we are supposed to grow in strength? What is that power? What does the power or might of the of the Lord of God? What does it look like? It seems to me that understanding this verse here is crucial for us to be able to understand the rest of the passage, as it outlines and sets up our posture as we're supposed to take up the armor of God. If we don't understand this verse, everything else will be disordered. So our first question then, what is the power of God? I think oftentimes when we read verses like this that exhort us to grow or live in a certain attribute of God, we think of God as taking our vision of any attribute and then turning it up to 11. So when we think about God as loving, we picture the most loving memory or the most loving experience we've ever had and said, God's love is like that, except it's a little bit more. When we say God is good, we'll say things and we'll imagine things like the goodness of God in our life. We think of the best memory of goodness we can can feel. And then we'll say God is like that, except a hundred times more than that. So think about how we sing songs in worship like um, Good, Good Father. We picture the, uh, the image of fatherhood that we have, the best image of fatherhood we have, and then say, God is like that, except he's more than that. God is better than that. When we say God is our provider, we think about the ways we provide for ourselves, and then what we do is we map that onto God and say, God is our provider, except he just does it in a better way that we can do for ourselves and in more efficient ways. 
So oftentimes when we talk about God, we map our experience onto God, multiply that experience by a thousand, and then say, God is like that. God becomes just a much better, a much more loving or gracious or caring version of ourselves. And the same goes for when we say God is powerful. We picture the most powerful thing we can ever imagine and say, God is like that, and then some. And that's the power of God. So if anyone has seen Avengers Infinity Wars, right, oftentimes I think that we think of God as someone who holds all of the Infinity Stones. Basically, if you haven't seen the movie, it's the stones that like, hold the principalities or the things that are controlling the universe, different aspects of the universe. So we might be able to hold one stone, two stones, but God, his power holds all of them. And that's how we think about the power of God. But what if we're wrong in this understanding of God? Like, what if God isn't like this at all? Friends, God isn't a creation like we are creations. God isn't an agent in the world like we are agents in the world. God is God. And for us, then, the call to be strengthened in the strength of God's might or the strength of his power is hard to us to grasp because as people who are created... We're conditioned to think of power on a relational continuum. So we think of power as power exerting over or power being exerted over us. That's how we think of power. So like when I'm coaching soccer and I have a kid who tells me I'm really fast or someone says I have a really, really powerful shot, that doesn't mean anything until it's put in relation with the players around them. If you have a fighter or someone, and he says, I'm really powerful, and we say, oh, this guy, he's really strong, he's really powerful. He's only as strong, or he's only strong, if he has an opponent who's weaker than him. So if he was powerful, but his opponent was stronger than him, would he be powerful in this situation between the two? Well, no. But God isn't like this. God's power isn't like this at all. God's power doesn't work that way. God's power isn't dependent on the presence of something weaker to exist. In fact, God's power oftentimes looks like weakness in the worldview of the world. And yet, this is the kind of power we're called to be strengthened in today. So think about the attributes of God in this way. Is God moral or immoral? Well, neither. Because God's holy. You see, to say that God is moral or immoral is to condition God within a framework that places God under our understanding of what is moral or immoral. But God's not bound by what we say is moral or or immoral. God is God. And as such, God is other. This This is exactly what Isaiah says when he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So let me put this differently. God isn't God on our terms. God's not God on our terms. God is God. And so when we talk about the power of God, God is not powerful in the same way 
and with the same, word, with the same terms that creation is powerful. If we think of God's power as a maxed-out version of our power, do you know what we're actually doing? What we're doing is making a God of power in our own image. Instead of allowing God to re-image our conception of power through his power. So this is the very essence of idolatry. Like to make a God in our own image. God's power isn't dependent and it's not domineering. But God's power is generative. It creates. So when we say that God's power is generative, it creates and it creates out of nothing. Like this is... On one level, we know this, right? Like, we've all seen and studied and read the creation story. We know this. God creates, and he creates out of nothing. That's what the story's telling us. But the scandal of God is that he invites us to join with him in his act of creation. Right? This is Christian vocation. God invites us to join in that power. And by joining in that power, we can live lives that further image God in the world around us. So think about it like this. It seems like with Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, just social media in general, we have like this uptick in call-out culture, right, and calling people out. So if someone does something that affronts enough people or a corporation does something that affronts enough people, like you'll see an avalanche of tweets and posts and like response videos. You have all these things. People have like their pitchforks and torches, And of course, there are times when this is right and good to be done. Like there are things, there is real brokenness in the world, and that stuff does need to be confronted and called out. But I think oftentimes, for me at least, I'm much more ready to call out the wrong in the world without ever giving thought to the people behind the wrongs that are being called out, and I'm also refusing to see the wrongs that I'm probably perpetuating in the same way I'm just blind to. Again, this doesn't diminish the reality or ignore the reality of wrong in the world. There is real brokenness. But when we do these call-outs, we almost always do it from a posture of human power. And what does that mean? It means we take it from a posture which places us above the ones being called out. So in my tradition, we might say that we're being prophetic, right? But hear me, friends, if our critique stops at the call-out and doesn't move towards being generative or creative for both the oppressed and the oppressor, then we're only perpetuating the demonic under guise of being prophetic. You're not being prophetic in the power of God, so you're not being godly. To be empowered in the Lord and the strength of his might, like this verse says, is to take up a posture that allows us to simultaneously be able to call out the brokenness of the oppressed and the unrealized beauty of the oppressor. This is what we should mean when we hear that we're supposed to be strong in the strength of God's power. So some friends this week put it this way. Is prophetic vision anything less than this? Not to see people or the world for what it is, but to see them in it for what it can become. 
To be empowered with God's power is to be able to call out the unknown and hidden beauty, to see others as God sees them, speak that vision, and believe it when they can't for themselves. This is the power of God in flesh. God's power is generative. And if we don't understand the distinction between our power and the power of God, we will fundamentally misunderstand what it means to put on the armor of God. Because our posture in arming ourselves will be disordered. So we'll revisit this again later. But as we look at our next two points, stew on this. And see if you can imagine what God might be calling us, Bethany Northeast, to become as we become strong in the Lord. Everyone okay? Point two. Put on, if you're following along. Point two. Verses, 13, verses 11 to 13. Put on the whole armor of God, that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Remember how I told you about my VBS experience, the armor of God growing up? Upon further reflection on how most of us have heard this passage taught or preached to us before, we've typically thought about it in ways where we all suit up in our suits of armor. And then from there, we create a century, which becomes a legionary. And then we grow to a cohort, and then we swell to a legion, and then finally we're this big army for God. And then we'll take over the strongholds that way. Am I right? Does this sound familiar? Does this ring a bell? Is that how we've heard it? Of course, in English, it's totally understandable why this kind of reading might come up. Unless you're from the South where they say, y'all, we just moved from Tennessee, we don't really distinguish between you singular and you plural in English. So because of this, especially when we're reading Paul, we can miss the intentionality Paul is using when he says to a large group to put on one thing. Like, don't miss what Paul's saying here. Did you know that almost every verb in all these verses, every verb is plural? It's not singular? Remember a couple weeks ago when Pastor Jack talked to us about the unity in the body of Christ? Ephesians 4.4, there is one body and one spirit, just as you, y'all, were called out, or were called to be the one hope. Not individual hopes, but the one hope that belong to your, all of you, your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and Father of all who covers all, and through all and in all. Paul's not mincing words here. What Paul said earlier in Ephesians is nothing less than a radical call for unity in action. And that call is repeated over and over and over in Paul's work. So last week, we looked at submission, right? Verse 19, talks about addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your, all of yours, heart, singular. Are you catching a trend here? We all know this verse, Romans 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies 
as a living sacrifice. We oftentimes think of this, your bodies as sacrifices. But your bodies, plural, as a living sacrifice, singular, holy and pleasing to God, this is y'all's true and proper worship. Completely changes the context of how we hear these verses, right? In our passage today, when Paul says to put on the whole armor of God, he's saying that all of us are supposed to don one suit of armor. So don't miss the thread and call to live in unity that is here just as it's been throughout all of Paul's work. So think about the song, This is How I Fight My Battles, right? Michael W. Smith, well done. Applause, because you move from self to other. At the end, in that last verse, it changes from, this is how I fight my battles, this is how I fight my battles, to this is how we fight our battles. Great job, Michael. But I can't help but think that if Paul had written this song, he would have gone a step further. If Paul had written this song, based on how we've read these texts today, Paul probably would have written, this is how we fight our battle, singular. This is how we fight our battle. Radical unity in the body of Christ. Not pseudo-unity, that's actually just uniformity masquerading as unity, but true unity that brings an awareness of our neighbors to us that is so deep that their struggles become my struggle, that their burdens become my burden, that my burdens are taken on by others when I can't carry them myself. And where I start carrying burdens that weren't originally mine, but they become mine because the character of God is being cultivated in my life. Yeah, Silas, I know, but this is Seattle. We're all about that Seattle freeze. I know, right? That's a thing. And I'm an introvert. And so it is uncomfortable. But the series we're finishing today, found, Recovering Our True Identity, is nothing less than an exhortation to recognize that as people who weakly choose to worship as the body of Christ, that's us, right? We're choosing to share our lives with others as a witness to the generative power of God. So no one makes you come here every week. But as one of your pastors, it is our hope that one of the reasons you come to Bethany Northeast each week is because through worship, through the community of the body, that we're all being formed into the image of God in increasingly faithful ways. Ways that turn us out from ourselves and that in time, we might be a church and people who are profoundly welcoming to the world around us. So to our passage today, specifically, it is with our understanding of power that we sketched earlier and how we're supposed to don one suit of armor that we can now address how that armor is meant to be used. Take a look look at verse 12 again. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, I'm Pentecostal, was practically born at the altar, church three to five times a week, yearly revivals, camp meetings, tongues of interpretation, running the aisles, getting slain in the spirit. That all just might sound like gibberish to you, okay? It's the tongues. I'm kidding. (laughs) But really, like the whole nine yards, that is my tribe. That is my background. 
And I can assure you, I've seen some pretty crazy things happen in the church service. And I'm fully convinced of the reality that evil can take the form of the demonic. But I think that oftentimes when we talk about this passage, the most deceitful scheme of the devil that Paul is warning us about in verse 11 is a scheme to think that the physical and the spiritual are distinctly separate and that our battle in the spiritual world is segregated or isolated from the physical world around us. So, friends, even though Paul is using military imagery, don't let the metaphor here militarize the message. Paul's trying to pass on something to us here. In verse 11, we're told to put on the armor of God so that we might be able to stand the wiles, stand against the wiles, or the deceptions or scams of the devil. Then Paul names ways in which evil manifests itself around, uh, around us. And that happens in verse 12. And then in verse 13, there's a command. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Now some translations have all the words there throughout the passage as stand. But this word here in verse 13, which the ESV translates as withstand, is different than the other standing. So it means to withstand or to resist. And that's different than the ways that that shows up in the other verses. So I've done prayer walks, Jericho marches, where you go and you march around a place, bring those walls down, pray, Okay, I have two bottles of anointing oil at home. That's true, okay? But I believe in the reality of evil, and I, I don't take that lightly. But I'm also aware that there has been plenty of damage that Christians have done with the best of intentions when armed with a framework or a worldview that segregates the world around us from the spiritual things. So remember what our power posture in God is supposed to look like? It's a generative posture. And as we grow in the strength of God's power and don the armor of God together, we must also come to realize that if we think we're being Christ's hands extended to the world without actually extending our hands, we're nothing more than resounding gongs or clanging cymbals. So let me put this another way. If we read Paul's armor metaphor here and immediately start thinking, our first thought is, who is the enemy? And who is the person that we have to go and defeat so that God can be made known? And then our next thought is, what is our tactic, right? What tactics need to happen so that we can combat the the enemy in this way? Well, almost always, not always, but almost always, fall prey to the same powers of violence and superiority that we're trying to combat. Almost always. So often, the power which we take up to attack idols and strongholds on behalf of God actually corrupts us and makes us commit idolatry as we take up the wrong kind of power. When Paul's try- what Paul is trying to emphasize here for the Ephesians is that, one, you're supposed to live in radical unity. Two, You're supposed to posture yourselves in generative power of God. And three, 
This is all done for the purpose of withstanding in the evil day. This is how the Ephesians are called to put on the armor of God. Be strong and put on Christ. So the last thing. Journey along. So after Paul tells us to be strong and to put on, take note of verse 18, where Paul tells us how we might do this, how we might carry this into our life, how we might journey along. Verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert, with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Remember how I said I revisit what we're talking about, what the power posture looks like in point one, be strong? As we prepare to close, I think the best way to talk about tangible application of what we've looked at today is the example of Stephen in Acts 7. We remember Stephen, right? He's the first Christian martyr. And he does exactly what Paul is exhorting us to do here in verses 18 and 19. Two things to pay attention to. He lives a life of prayer that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And then two, in opening his mouth, he boldly proclaims the mystery of the gospel. So observe the death of Stephen. Acts 7, 55 to 60, if you're going to follow along. Acts 7, 55. But, filled with the Holy Spirit, note that, he gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they, the Sanhedrin, covered their ears and with a loud shout all rushed together against him. Then they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out in a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he died. There is so much here, but real quick, notice who has the position of power in this text when we use the paradigm or worldview of power that comes from the world. Stephen is standing in the midst of the Sanhedrin, the most respected religious and national leaders within the region. So think of the Sanhedrin like the Supreme Court. These are the most elite of the elites. And in their culture, their responsibility was to maintain order and the morality of Israel. So certainly the Sanhedrin does have real power. It just so happens that their power is power that's powerful under the scheme or framework of the world, not the power of God. If we read this text through the paradigm of God's power, notice who models the power of God here, as revealed in Christ. Notice here, Stephen isn't, Stephen isn't operating with a diminished level of power in opposition to the power of the Sanhedrin. 
Instead, Stephen has taken on a posture in the generative and creative power of God, and in doing so, he's able to do what Paul exhorts us to do, live a life of prayer empowered by the Spirit, and, even more remarkably, Stephen is able to boldly proclaim the mystery of the gospel as his last words echo the words of Christ when he says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. It's the same thing Christ says on the cross. So look closely here and see that Stephen postures his life like Christ, being strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of his power, to humble himself to the point of death. He humbles himself not in a way that thinks less of himself, but instead humbles himself in a way that thinks of himself less. With his last words, the power of God alive in him allows him to generatively pray on behalf of his oppressors. Just as we aim to do so today, Stephen joins with God's people, us, in donning the armor of God so that he is able to withstand the evil day. Adorned with truth and righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, and the word of God by the power of the Spirit, Stephen chose and chooses to model Christ's death. One, he commits his spirit into the hands of God. And in his last moments, he poses himself kneeling in a final act of intercession on behalf of those who are stoning him. As he has just seen, catch this, Christ the King, not seated at the right hand of the Father in judgment, but rather standing at the right hand of God in solidarity with Stephen as the one who has overcome death and now stands with us in our sufferings. Are you seeing the posture? What a powerful witness. And what a convicting testimony. In referring to this story, early church father Ambrose, he puts it this way. He says, In his last moments, Jesus was standing as Stephen's advocate. He was standing as though anxious that he might be able to help Stephen in his conflicts. He was standing as though ready to crown his martyr. When he sits, he judges. But when he stands, he decides. Let him stand for you as a defender, as a good shepherd, lest the fierce wolves assault you. This is Ambrose who says this. What an incredible scene. Stephen's heart has been transformed in his giving of his life and his spirit to the Holy Spirit, that makes it possible for him to participate in the intercession of Jesus, of the Son. Christ is standing in an act of coronation to place his crown on Stephen, and Stephen has knelt in intercession and then will rise in glory. Do you think that Stephen's witness had any impact here? Do you think it changed the world around him? as he interceded for the ones who were oppressing him with his last breaths? Did Stephen, empowered in the strength of God's power and filled with the Spirit, put on Christ 
in the way that created a new reality for the people around him? Do you think it's possible that from his kneeling pose, the image of Stephen's testimony might have seared itself onto the heart of a young man who was taking care of coats while his elders stoned someone to death? I'd like to think that when Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians from jail, that he thought back to a time when he was younger. I'd like to think that Paul thought back to a time when he was full of zeal and considered himself a true defender of the faith. I'd like to think that when he wrote this letter, Paul thought back to a time when he saw but could not yet recognize that Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, showed what it meant to be strong in the generative power of God, what it meant to join with Christ and his church in putting on the armor of God, and what it meant to journey along in life as one who has postured his life in a pose of intercession on behalf of the other. As the band comes up or prepares to come up, let's not move too quickly from this word. Before we sing together, take a couple minutes to reflect on what God might be saying to you and what he might be saying to us as we meditate on what our identity is meant to be. We've just finished the series. How might you be strong How might you put on and journey along this week? If you desire someone to pray with you uh, as we play these last couple songs, there will be people in the corner over here who can pray with you, who are willing to share your burdens with you. Obey the Lord and discern his call. Contemplate the wonders of God. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll take a couple minutes to pray, and then um, Pastor Jack will give us a benediction. Holy God, who is with us in our joys and our sorrows, in whom we live and move and have our being, we pray today that you would speak to us in ways that form our lives into your image. Make us faithful in how we live. And may your power be evident and present in the life around us, not just for our sake, but for the sake of the people who we are responsible for. We thank you that you have created us to be able to respond to your grace and your power. And show us who we are responsible for, God. We pray this with Christ by the power of the Spirit. Amen.